Hi, my name's Samuel Finlay, and you're listening to the ACES Podcast. In this episode, I speak with ACES Chief Investigator and Ethics, Policy, and Public Engagement Theme Leader from La Trobe University, Professor Suzanne Dodds. We have a conversation about her role within ACES, her research career and background in philosophy, and much more. So, let's get to the podcast. So, I'm chatting with Professor Suzanne Dodds on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Sam. So, everyone, yourself and myself included, are going through this uh, very different time due to COVID. You're down in Melbourne. How has uh, this, this time been for you? Obviously, you guys are, uh, have a few more restrictions than those of us in New South Wales. Look, it's really an interesting time. I mean, it's a really difficult time for many people. And the second round of lockdown, which we hope will be the last one, um, is particularly stressful for people. And I think that, that we're seeing that um, while people had uh, commitment to doing the right thing the first time, that some people are saying, well, I'm, I'm happy to keep on doing that. I want to stay safe. I want to keep people safe around me. But people are also just feeling a little fed up and a bit depressed by the whole thing. So I think that it's certainly more noticeable that people are a bit scratchier. But personally, I'm okay. Um, I've got uh, plenty of space around me. I'm staying well. My dogs are keeping me entertained. And I've got no shortage of things to do sitting on Zoom. <laughs> How have you found that um, the switching it to Zoom and doing all your meetings online? Well, look, it's, it's, it's more tiring. I think many people have noticed this before, that it's uh, because you have to focus much more on microfacial maneuvers than you get when you're in a meeting um, and that you're having to project much more clearly because you can't assume that people can read your body language and so on, that it is more tiring and it requires more attention. I also just miss the fact that, you know, um, at work, I'm, I'm regularly standing, going to different meetings, walking between things, seeing different people, um, and so this idea of being sort of locked in my chair um, for hours and hours on, uh, at a time is really kind of wearying. Um, but, uh, but it's been interesting, the capacity to um, make contact with people globally um, during this period and being able to retain those connections. Um, so some of the things that would take you know, weeks to try to organize a meeting is much easier if you don't have to move to get there. Certainly. And focusing a little bit on your role within ACES, uh, starting there, I guess. Uh, So can you explain what those roles involve? My background is in philosophy, um, both political philosophy and in um, ethics, normative philosophy. But the the role of theme leader um, and as a CI in ACES for me is um, very often about bringing the knowledge and the experience and the methods of um, social sciences and humanities into what is primarily um, a a science-based center and and just being able to have the the privilege to work alongside researchers who are doing the fundamental research around some of the properties of materials through to those people who are looking at applications and then trying to commercialize the work um, to, to think about the ways in which some of the ethical, the social, the political, the regulatory um, factors really are interleaved right from the beginning, uh, but also have different manifestations along the way. So, you know, a researcher who's trying to develop something which may be um, uh, useful for renewable energy, 
um, is working within a regulatory framework. And so getting them to think a little bit about, well, what if that changes or how resilient you are um, is important. Or those people who are looking at clinical applications of their research, getting them to think right from the beginning about the patient who might be using uh, the device they're developing or the, uh, the, the assay that they're developing um, helps to, to, I think, um, alert me as a philosopher to some of the ethical issues that I might not have known about because I hadn't really understood the science, but also helps those people who are working um, on the materials, who are working on uh, the device or the development of, of a new bit of research to get them thinking about, well, what's going to happen you know, after I finish my piece, how likely is it that this is actually going to have the uh, effects I wanted it to? Because is it going to run into a regulatory uh, roadblock or will people not accept it and so on? So I find working in that environment really exciting and, and lots of fun. But the group, what we do is um, we've got, you know, a range of milestones that align with some of the milestones for um, the wider uh, ACES um, centre. And but looks really at, at, at some of the what might be seen as the far out uh, sorts of questions about, well, how how might this be taken up in a society down the track or what might be the things you'd want to think about when developing um, a new battery? Do you want to think about the materials and how they may or may not contribute to economic development in a third world country. You know, how do we get those questions in? So that's basically what we do. We, we irritate people and ask them questions <laughs> that they hadn't really thought they needed to answer. <laughs> so focusing a little more on your background in philosophy, why did you decide to study in that area? I don't know. Uh, I think it was about a, a curiosity um, and that, that interested in the way in which arguments work and trying to understand why um, there might be substantive conflict within society or how we might find that, that our laws could be critically evaluated from an ethical perspective. So I, um, I studied uh, my undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto um, and you know now 30 something years ago, oh, <laughs> 40 years ago. Um, and, uh, <laughs> And um, when I was starting out, um, it was a big university, it was all new, um, but I was doing a Bachelor of Arts and was interested in questions. Um, I thought I was interested in questions around society and history, but it turned out that I was really much more interested in questions about uh, political theory, political philosophy, and about ethics. And um, through um, you know, trial and error uh, and being a bit adventurous in, in the subjects I took, I found that my niche was in understanding um, the way a changing society um, engages with technologies or in changes with um, develop, engages with changes in, in medical opportunities and start asking the questions about well which of those things are functions of simply you know the political structure of the society and which ones are substantive ethical issues and so I started looking at questions in bioethics as an undergrad but did my PhD on theories about um, property rights. So, you know, what, what, is, what does ownership mean? What's the moral basis for claims of ownership, which then rapidly moved me into discussions about uh, Indigenous peoples' claims uh, to their uh, traditional lands and, and the ownership that had been um, traduced by uh, colonial struggles. Uh, but also looking at questions about property in the body, questions about surrogacy, 
uh, questions about organ donation. And so I found that, that that connection between the politics and the ethics on real world issues uh, was really important to me. So you did your PhD at La Trobe University coming from Toronto. What was the decision or why was the decision to move to Australia to do your PhD at La Trobe? Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't come to Australia to do my PhD. What I thought I was doing was coming to Australia for two years to do a master's by research um, when I had just finished uh, my bachelor's degree and, and knew that I could, with a library and time, or at least my, my, my conceit to myself with, with a library and time, uh, you know, 48 hours, I could probably write an essay, a 10-page essay on almost any topic. Um, and so I wanted to, to get the experience of writing a more extended piece and to be in a different philosophical environment. But I thought I was really coming for, for just uh, a master's degree and just for 18 months to two years. Um, but uh, turned out that the combination of my supervisor uh, encouraging me to transfer from a master's to a PhD um, and falling in love that, uh, that I um, <laughs> have stayed ever since um, and find myself back at La Trobe some 30 years later. <laughs> yeah. So you, as you mentioned, you're back at La Trobe now, but after doing that PhD, you first joined UAW for your first position after um, study? Yeah, so my first uh, real job, and actually it was while I was still working on my PhD, um, was at La Trobe uh, initially as an 11-month lectureship, uh, which then um, was uh, then applied for and, and got a continuing role after a couple of steps. Um, and, uh, and that was a, a role where I was um, teaching a lot of ethical issues for nursing students, um, but also teaching some uh, legal theory within the law school, as well as doing some traditional philosophical work. And, uh, but yes, I spent 19 years at uh, Wollongong and it was a really good experience for me. And then on to UTAS, uh, followed by UNSW and, and now to La Trobe, as we've mentioned. But how did the opportunity and when did uh, the opportunity to join ACES come about? Well, when I was at uh, the University of Wollongong, I was chairing um, the university's Human Research Ethics Committee and, um, and was asked to join the Animal Research Ethics Committee um, by Leon Kane McGuire who was then the chair. And, um, and I worked very closely with Leon and Leon obviously is uh, closely aligned to, to the beginnings of ACES. But it meant that when um, ACES was looking at its um, center of excellence application, they were recognizing that perhaps it would be useful to get um, some interdisciplinary engagement into humanities and social sciences and to ask some of the ethical issues um, that were gonna be relevant for ACES. So this is ACES Mark One. Uh, and, uh, and I was lucky enough um, that uh, Leon suggested that I might be interested and had a number of conversations with uh, Leon, with uh, Gordon Wallace, um, with the various other people who, who uh, initiated the first ACES grant application. And I'm pretty sure that aside from Leon, nobody else was completely confident it was a good idea to bring a philosopher into, <laughs> into ACES, but, um, but I've grown on them and they've grown on me. Um, and over time, we've been able to develop a really strong partnership. Uh, but, uh, but Leon was very generous um, in encouraging me uh, along. I think he's sort of my role model in some ways for what a good uh, research mentor should look like. And, and, uh, and so I'm trying now to pay back some of that debt. 
So as we've mentioned through the, the podcast, you're with Latrobe now and you joined last year as the Deputy Vice Chancellor for Research and Industry Engagement. How did that opportunity come about? Um, well, uh, so after I left Wollongong, I was the Dean of Arts at the University of Tasmania and then the Dean of Arts and Social Sciences at um, University of New South Wales, but retained my engagement with ACES and in the research sector. Um, but I had um, done some work um, for Latrobe in some of its reviews and so on, so I knew the leadership team at the university and admired what they were trying to achieve, uh, so that when they were looking uh, for a Deputy Vice Chancellor for Research and Industry Engagement um, back at the end of um, 20, I can't remember now, 2018, uh, I, I put up my hand because I thought it might be an interesting and engaging role, but also that I thought that the kinds of um, skills I'd developed through collaboration with ACES, but also the knowledge and experience I developed as a dean um, and in my work with the NHMRC and ARC, that, that I might have some skills that could be useful. And I was lucky enough to be selected for the role. Uh, how's the campus changed since uh, your PhD? Well, part of it is the number of campuses has increased. Um, so Latrobe has campuses in uh, Wodonga in uh, Shepparton, Bendigo um, and Mildura, as well as two in Melbourne. And so um, the campus itself, the core is still there. I, I wandered into a room that was at one point an office I'd used, um, but there's a lot of new buildings. There's, um, and, but the, the core of it and it's really fantastic setting with sort of parklands and a wildlife reserve um, and with beautiful gardens around it is something that uh, I've always admired. Um, and it's like many of the universities of its era, a bit like Wollongong um, and UNSW, that uh, every year as the trees grow and as the natural environment takes over, um, that it becomes more and more beautiful. So I imagine that position comes with many different hats and many different tasks, but, but what are some of the things that you um, have to do, say, day to day? Well, at the moment, uh, a lot of it is, is establishing the university's research strategy, as well as um, shifting some of our focus from uh, primarily looking at research in terms of the main funding, uh, funding bodies to, to thinking about how we can engage in partnerships with industry, with our communities, um, how we can collaborate better internationally, and how we can support our graduate researchers um, in this really tough time to imagine a range of careers that they can go into um, at the end of their degree. So I guess reflecting on your career so far, this is probably going to be pretty difficult to answer, but is there maybe one achievement that stands out uh, among the rest? Well, one of the things I'm most proud of as a researcher um, was a project I did a few years ago on human vulnerability um, and just being able to bring, get back to some of that uh, core philosophical work around how human beings are inherently vulnerable, but also how our social structures, our technologies make some people particularly vulnerable. And it's been interesting to be able to link up some of that work on, you know, with, with two, two women that I admire deeply, uh, Wendy Rogers and Katrina McKenzie, to be able to do some rich philosophical work, but also to see how that could apply in a range of things so that it's been helpful in the way in which um, the EPPE team engages with the soft robotics team about understanding um, the significance of disability and the lived experience of people with disability, um, but also understanding how 
um, if we want to make sure that ACES research has impact um, globally rather than simply in, in wealthy places, that we need to think really carefully about how we design things um, and how we make sure that we may contribute to you know, the technologies that can support disaster resilience or technologies that can be supporting you know, circumstances like right now, do, do we want to, to test um, new vaccines or new medical treatments um, inside someone's body or in a lab on a chip? Well, I think that, that uh, for many things we want to uh, test out risky behaviours uh, or risky um, treatments uh, on things that aren't inside the body. So that question about human vulnerability is, for me, has been a highlight in terms of my intellectual development and thinking about how central that is to so much of what we do, but also how important that is for thinking about the impacts of the things we do, especially when we think we're going to have a positive impact to be aware of the fact that we might actually be creating uh, a new source of human vulnerability. So how about life outside of work? What do you do in your downtime? Oh, in those moments, um, I love being outdoors. I love being out in the garden. I love taking bushwalks. Um, I've got uh, two dogs, one of whom is sitting on my feet while we speak. <laughs> um, and so for me, it's that um, being in the world um, and, uh, and having a chance to, you know, go for a walk to, to see things um, and to see how things change uh, continually outside in the world. So um, I'm definitely um, a, a girl who likes to be out in, this, in, in, the, in the world um, and to be out in the environment and to, and to take a good long bushwalk is for me a, a fantastic tonic. Uh, fortunately, I have a partner who uh, tolerates all that and goes along <laughs> for the ride. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think outside work, um, it's really about um, spending time being in nature um, and being able to enjoy it in that way and kind of exercising my body uh, as a way of freeing up a little bit of space in my mind. Sure. And something I've asked everyone on the podcast and I've continued to ask it throughout this whole series is whether or not they have a morning routine or maybe something that they do every day that helps them approach their, their work. Is there something well, that, that you do? Yeah, well, the alarm goes off and the Labrador jumps on my chest to tell me that we have to go <laughs> for a walk. Um, and so the first thing I do every day is, you know, throw on some clothes and go for, you know, 45 minute or an hour long walk. And that helps me to clear out my mind a bit. Um, but it also gives me a chance to kind of build up a bit of energy for the day. And that sets me up pretty well. Um, so that's, that's, that's the thing I do every day. Uh, but I also try to make sure that I get a short walk at the end of the day in as well so that um, I can settle a couple of things and, and, and not have to go to bed worrying about a particular issue or a particular thing I haven't quite sorted out. So for me, that's, that's the major bit. Um, I try to get a bit of writing done every day. I'm much less successful at that than I am at having the Labrador <laughs> tell me that I need to go for a walk. <laughs> so if you weren't doing research for a living, what do you think uh, you might be doing? Oh, look, I think I would probably keep on doing some of my research if I wasn't, you know, being paid to do it. Um, I'm, I'm at that point in my life where I can imagine that being actually kind of fun. Um, <laughs> but I also think that I'd be spending time looking at, you know, is there uh, some work I could do in advocacy or is there work I could do on boards or with other groups to try to um, take some of the things I care passionately about um, and help them to actually be realized. And so, you know, I know a fair bit about, um, uh, you know, healthcare systems, know a fair bit about um, the way in which there can be structural injustices and so on. And, and, you know, finding ways in which I can use that 
uh, into actually change the world rather than just to talk about it, which is what philosophers are often accused of doing. So just to finish up the podcast, I'm wondering if you could maybe offer some advice to uh, either someone who's just started a PhD, whether that be in philosophy or science, or someone who's maybe thinking about doing it. Look, I think that it's, I think there's a lot of value in the rigor that um, doing a PhD can bring to you thinking. But I also think people should be open to um, the things that they hadn't expected. So I was really lucky um, as a, an early PhD student in finding people who wanted to write about a range of applied ethics topics while I was still working on my own project. And so taking a little bit of time to get some publications done with people in a relatively low risk way um, and, and, and discovering um, new ideas that you hadn't thought of along the way, um, that was incredibly valuable for me. And so I guess I would try to get people to embrace the possibilities that come along the way as a PhD student um, and to know that, yes, you have to get your PhD done in the period that you've got. And so you need to do lots of writing. But don't forget about the wonder and the interest and the excitement that powers your, your PhD studies. Don't just see it as something that you just have to get through and it's painful all the way. Find, find the fun in it. Some great advice there. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me on the, the podcast today. And um, yeah, all, all the best with this situation we've got going on, especially being down in Melbourne with the restrictions a bit more tighter than they are up here. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. I'm pretty confident that uh, in Melbourne we will uh, endure and we'll, we'll get through, but uh, I am particularly concerned about those people who are doing it tough in these circumstances. But thank you very much, Sam. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to the ACES podcast. For more episodes like this one, be sure to subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can also find more information about ACES on our website, electromaterials.edu.au. There you'll find links to our various social media platforms. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Samuel Finlay. Until next time, thanks for listening.